Do you know what you are working for? It's an important question to ask because our motivations are shaped by our goals, aren't they? Without a sense of purpose, it's hard for us to commit with conviction to the tasks that we have before us. I once had a job where I wasn't sure what I was working for. Now, in one sense, I was working for a wage at the end of the month, and that at least brought me into the office at nine o'clock five times a week. But what was I meant to be doing when I got there? It wasn't clear to me what our goals were or how I was contributing to meeting them. I started producing monthly reports that showed graphs with lines that were pointing upwards, desperately trying to prove my worth to my manager and to the organization as a whole. But it was frustrating and at times disheartening. It was frustrating because I put in a lot of effort that seemed to go unrecognized or even unwanted. It was disheartening because I would sometimes find that I had been focused on entirely the wrong thing all along, which was at best a waste of time and at worst actively detrimental to our mission. Perhaps you know what that is like in working life, frustrating and disheartening. Or perhaps as I speak, you have in mind the work of the Christian life. If you were with us for the first in this series in 1 Thessalonians, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of recent converts to the Christian faith. And his letter is all about the gospel at work. He describes the change that takes place in people when they become followers of Jesus. And the language could not be more active. He says, chapter 1 and verse 3, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The three great Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope look like work, labour, and endurance. And we've run with that for three chapters. We've seen how the gospel is lived out in the lives of the believers because of their faith, how the gospel is made known through the witness of the believers in their love for others, how the gospel is shown to be true among the believers in their endurance, in the face of suffering, even persecution. But a question has been hanging over all of this for these past three chapters. The question is, why? Why work? Why labour? Why endure? What is it all for? And before we jump too quickly to the answer that Paul gives to those questions in chapter 4, let's sit with them for just one moment more. Because I don't think I will be alone among us listening here when I admit that I ask God those kinds of questions sometimes. What am I working for? What is it that you want from me? I've had those periods in life of seeking to discern God's will. Which place does he want me to live in? Which people does he want me to spend time with? What kind of work does he want me to do? Vocationally, 
I sit rather uncomfortably between Christian ministry and communications and creative projects. It's tempting to fall into a kind of angst about that and the seeming lack of clarity that it brings. For you, maybe it's work, maybe it isn't work. Maybe it's a relationship, deciding whether or not to pursue a relationship to begin with, or deciding whether or not to commit a relationship to marriage, maybe deciding whether or not to end a relationship, or when, or how. They are important questions for us, because we've been taught to obey God. We want to make sure that we don't make mistakes, particularly with the big things. What does he want from us? What does he want for us? Well, there are three ways of responding to such questions. One is to be seized by them, paralyzed from decision-making out of fear of making a mistake. Those are the people who are waiting on the Lord and are sometimes waiting for a very long time. They're the ones who lay out their fleece, as Gideon did in the book of Judges, effectively putting God to the test by letting the clock run out on anything that would amount to taking personal responsibility. Another way of handling such questions is to dismiss them and to live as if our choices have no consequences at all. In a famous scene in the American political drama, The West Wing, President Bartlett says, Every once in a while, every once in a while, there's a day with an absolute right and an absolute wrong. But those days almost always include body counts. He then goes on to say that there aren't very many unnuanced moments in life. Which is true, though it doesn't follow that unnuanced moments lead to unimportant decisions. We can't downplay or dismiss the seriousness of our choices. Already in this letter, Paul has urged his readers to chapter 2 and verse 12, live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And he's warned his readers against chapter 2 verse 16, those whose sins are heaped up against them to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Our lives and our choices matter. So how do we handle these big questions of life? Not to be seized by them and stuck in inaction. Not to dismiss them and to trivialize our choices. No, the Apostle Paul shows us a third way, a better way, a biblical way of handling such questions. It's there at the beginning of chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What does God want from us? Verse 1, that we please him. 
What does God want for us? Verse 3, that we are sanctified. What Paul does with these verses is quite extraordinary. It's truly liberating for those who are seized by fear of making significant decisions. And at the same time, it is truly challenging for those who are careless and carefree over the consequences of their choices. What Paul does is to take our puzzling questions about purpose and discernment and to submit them to God's revealed will in his word. He sets an agenda for us which at the same time concerns our relationship with him, that we might please him through our lives lived for his sake, and concerns our responsibilities under him, that we might be sanctified, that is, to be made holy. God has not left us in the dark about how he wants us to live. What is to motivate our choices? Pleasing him. What is to enable us to make those choices? Our holiness. Notice this is what the Thessalonians had been instructed in, in verse 1. I wonder if you think of Christian teaching that way. That as its goal and purpose, we, by obeying it, might please God. If it's any teaching worth listening to, Christian teaching always ought to do two things. It ought to hold up what is true and it ought to hold out why it is good. God's word is always true and it is always good. We're to obey it because it comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself at verse 2 and because it comes with the purpose of bringing pleasure to our Father in heaven. It won't be easy hearing God's word and responding to it in this way. We'll need God's help. But even as he speaks and as we seek to obey, we grow more and more into the holiness that he calls us into. So we have some new categories as we face up to the big questions of life. Our discernment before God becomes a practice in submitting our desires to please ourselves under our desire to please him. It becomes a practice in pursuing not our material benefits or the idols of power or passion or prestige, but rather the spiritual benefits that come from being holy as we submit our will under God's revealed will in his word. What does God want from us? That we please him. What does God want for us? That we are sanctified. And so we're free to face the big questions of life with these new categories in view before us. No longer questions of what should I do, but rather questions of how can I please God in this? No longer questions of where should I be, but rather questions of who does God want me to become? Those are the kinds of people we grow into being as we hear God's will revealed in his word and seek to obey it in every area of our lives. Well, look, that's a lot to take on board. (laughs) And it's probably enough for one lunchtime even. But 
really by way of conclusion, I want to press into one particular area of life that Paul goes on to mention. It is that of relationships and sex. Verse 4 is one of those verses in the Bible which is notoriously difficult to translate. Paul writes about a vessel which must be either controlled or possessed. It's figurative language in both cases and translators have to decide what that figurative language represents. Is it, as the NIV footnote has it, that men should learn to live with their own wife, suggesting a problem with adultery, Or is it more general, as the main text of the NIV has it, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, suggesting a broader problem with promiscuity? I think it's probably the latter. At least in the context, that seems appropriate. Because the correct conduct for a Christian is contrasted with how the pagans live, in verse 5. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like that of the pagans who do not know God. What Paul is saying here is that there is a right way to use our bodies and a wrong way. And we need to hear these words as much today as the Thessalonians did 2,000 years ago. Andrew Wilson has written an excellent article for the Living Out website, which has just been relaunched. He writes about the true sexual revolution and says that it was during the 50s and 60s AD, not the 1950s and 60s, where the true sexual revolution happened in the West Christian sexual ethics burst into the ancient world and turned cultural expectations on their head. So he writes of sex in the ancient Greek culture, in some ways they prized it too much, treating it as something of a god, and needed to be taught that a celibate life was not just possible, but actually preferable. But in other ways, they prized it too little, seeing it merely as a natural bodily function with no mystery or spirituality or transcendence. Our culture does much the same thing, seeing sex as everything, one minute, how can you live a full life without it, and as nothing, the next. Why does it even matter who we have sex with? How does God speak into such a situation? Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. The Bible's teaching in this passage and elsewhere is consistent and clear. The only right context for sex is within the committed covenant of marriage, which is between one man and one woman. The Christian model for sex and relationships is faithfulness within marriage and abstinence outside of marriage. Four quick observations on this, and then we'll end. Firstly, 
notice that God's will is revealed in his word. People often say that Paul had some sort of prudish attitude towards sex, which stands against the teaching and the life of Jesus. But see where his instructions come from. Uh, Verse 1, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 8, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. We're not at liberty to downplay or dismiss Christian ethics when it comes to sex and marriage. God has spoken. His word is true and it comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. Secondly, secondly, notice that God's word on this is good. If our motivation ought to be pleasing God, it stands to reason that living his way in his world brings him pleasure. It does us good too. No longer bound up in passionate lust, uh, the sense there is of an uncontrolled and unbridled submission to our urges. Instead, to live in a way that is self-controlled, holy and honourable. It does others good as well. And that's what verse 6 is getting at. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Every relationship that doesn't have as its focus pleasing God will be marked instead by pleasing oneself. But we each of us know the hurt and the heartbreak of relationships that are unholy and dishonourable. We know the trials and the trauma of those who are abused or exploited, taken advantage of, or even abandoned. God's word is good, and living God's way is good, because it leads us into a place of flourishing with one another, rather than taking advantage of one another. As Jesus once asked, Mark eight thirty six, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. He wants always to give us what is best. Thirdly, notice that God's word on this is serious. Disobedience carries consequences. Verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God did not call us for impurity, but for holiness. Sexual sin is characteristics of the pagans, in verse 5, who do not know God. It is not compatible with authentic, faithful Christian living. It is sin, verse 6, and the Lord punishes sin and warns us of it. And perhaps there is someone listening here today who needs to take that warning seriously, as we all do. Maybe that is within marriage, not treating your husband or wife as you ought to. Today is a good day for repentance. Maybe that is outside marriage, with the boyfriend or the girlfriend where you've gone too far too often 
today is a good day for repentance. Maybe that is at work, allowing your eye to be drawn to someone else, that colleague, that flirtation. Today is a good day for repentance. Maybe that is at home, allowing your eye to be drawn to internet pornography. It's an industry built on sex trafficking and exploitation. Today is a good day for repentance. But fourthly, notice that God's word on this gives us hope. We might well be wondering about our own struggles and temptations and saying, who, O Lord, could save themselves? The good news, of course, is that while we can't, he can. It's not for nothing that verse 8 ends with a mention of the Holy Spirit. These instructions come from the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. It is his work in us that enables us to live his way. And a word for those struggling with temptation and sin, God calls us into growth in holiness and equips us for growth in holiness. Remember verse 1, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Sanctification doesn't always seem to go on a a straight line, always upwards. The Christian life sometimes feels like two steps forward, one step back. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and probably more like a cross-country hike with ups and downs and slips and slides along the way. Where we stumble and fall, we're not to despair, but instead to hear the voice of the Spirit prompting us to repentance. Hear the words of Christ who speaks forgiveness. And turning again towards our Father in heaven who longs for us to please him. What does God want from us that we please him? What does God want for us that we are sanctified? We can't do it by our own strength, but with the help of God, we can. So with that in mind, let me pray for us now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about how we ought to live in your world. Help us we pray, to seek to please you and be at work in us to make us holy. We pray that'll be true of every area of our lives. But pray particularly today for those areas of sexual temptation. Keep us pure and train us in holiness, we pray, because it is your kindness that leads us to repentance and your grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. May that be true of us this day and onwards. We ask with the help of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.